0: Hi, I'm Nathan Gould. And I'm Lazarus Gramos, and welcome to the Backpeg Daily Doha World Cup edition number 22, I believe it is, Nathan.
1: Yes, it certainly is, and Laz, thank you for joining me on the Back Peg, COVID and all, I will say, this episode of the Daily Doha is brought to us by Lazarus Gramos.
0: Oh, I don't know about that, I'd rather go with this episode is brought to you by the streets of Zagreb, where they've been out celebrating their... Third place attainment at the World Cup. Well done. Honestly, well done to Croatia. Congratulations, to everyone concerned, and to the country of Croatia. <music> incredible performance to finish third. Now, that's the second time they finished third, and to do it in back-to-back World Cups, where they finished second in the last uh, World Cup, obviously, as runners-up, and to back it up with a third place in this World Cup, just incredible. Since 1998, seven World Cups. And uh, they've placed in three of them. Just in, insane.
1: Fantastic achievement for Croatia. Hats off to the players, Luka Modric, Vatiol and co. Hats off to the manager in uh, Zlatko Delic. Hats off to the Croatian FA because it's remarkable what they've been able to achieve in such a short time following their independence. And as you say, three podium places in seven tournaments is unbelievable. Most countries around the world would be happy with that. And for Croatia to do it, a country that size, is fantastic. So, as I say, congratulations. Commiserations on not making the final again, but, wow, another podium place. Unbelievable. Indeed,
0: indeed. And the Raki will be free-flowing all around Zagreb and in Croatian households in Australia tonight. So, there you go. There you go. How are you, Nathan?
1: I'm doing great, lads. I was up for the third-place playoff. Um, Same. I was thinking, am I, am I going to go to bed, watch the mini-match in the morning because... It's just a third place playoff, you know, there's not too much riding on the game, but it was fantastic, the football. We said yesterday that this game often is played with the handbrake off, there's less pressure, and you often see a good event, and that's what we did see. We saw two teams that have previously in this tournament played with a desperation not to concede, to sit off, to, to try and keep the door shut, and take opportunities when they come. But today we saw two teams play on the front foot trying to create chances, trying to create goals. And it was a great game of football. Well done to Croatia for getting over the line and scoring that all-important second goal that Morocco were not able to do. But it was a great game. It was a great game and a great lead-in to
0: tomorrow's final. Glad I watched it as well, actually. It was it was a really quality football. And it did make up um, for the lack of football that we watched last night which in the A-League, which I'm really annoyed about, actually, this morning. Oh, you and me both. That's really, really peeved me To be honest, Um, I'm really upset and um, disappointed, disappointed, uh, because how do we do this to ourselves in this game, in this country, honestly? And um, I know that we, you know, actually, funnily enough, we were talking about, and we should let the listeners know as well, that uh, post the World Cup, we are going to be kicking off the actual Backpeg podcast. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Two months
1: into the show, we're going to be having our episode one. That's right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes, we have been focusing on the World Cup. Uh, We did our preview, our Destination Doha series, and now we're doing the Daily Doha during the World Cup, the last episode of which will be tomorrow. And the first episode we had slated for after Christmas was, where to now for Australian football uh, in light of such a a successful World Cup? Well, given the events that happened in Melbourne last night, where to now for Australian football indeed? Yes, the, the
1: question has changed. Following the match against Argentina, Two weeks ago, that's all it was, two weeks ago. It might feel like longer, but it was just a fortnight ago. We were coming on here and talking about how Australian football, the Australian professional leagues, Football Australia, and the clubs can harness this goodwill, this moment of magic for Australian football, one that has been deprived for so long. It has been many years since football industry in this country has taken an uptick in support from non-football lovers, and it was... In the press for good reasons. For once, Australian football. Been a long time coming. And once again, once again, football in Australia has managed to shoot itself in the foot. And yes, it comes off the back of the decision from the APL earlier in the week. But nothing can excuse what happened last night. And Laz, once I saw the news filtering through, I was heartbroken. Because you, me, and everyone else in the football media in this country has fought tooth and nail to give a platform to Australian football, to give it a leg to stand on in face of all the external pressures and all those that don't want to see football succeed in this country. But at the end of the day, it's the internal factors that once again cause the death knell of football in this country.
0: Nathan, we are a football country and I don't ever want to let it be heard that or said that we are not because you have people that care about football. You have so many podcasts around, you know, you have so many podcasts about football that come out of Australia, right? Now, that just goes to show the level of interest and intrigue that there is and, and love for the game. Now, you have so many professionals in, involved in the game. Now, I put a, I put a uh, post on LinkedIn, on my LinkedIn page, right? And I think this just covers it, what I what I actually feel. The decision that the APL took about the grand final being played in Sydney for the next three years, the grand finals, so both the men's and the women's, has caused a shitstorm, Right? You're going to, have to set, you're going to have to put a classification on this podcast because it's going to be profanity. Nathan, just say so you know, <laughs> I'm warning you now. Right? <laughs> well, this has caused a shitstorm. During the week, <clears throat> we had that decision with the APL, right? And after last night's episodes at the Melbourne uh, Derby, which should have been a celebration of football, and that's the thing. Last night should have been a celebration of football, but instead some dickheads actually turned it into a, to what it became, right? We'll get to those guys in a minute. It should have been a celebration of football, but instead it amplified the shitstorm and in turn has caused the game more heartache, like you said, Nathan. Heartbroken, right? Completely. Yet again, we as a game managed to score an own goal. Just to be clear, the fans should not have interrupted the game at all under any circumstances. Period. No excuse. No argument about that. And if you can call those people fans, I already use the term tickets, and that's what they are. That is people's workplace. They're professional footballers. That is their income, irrespective of how much they're paid. You don't have other people come to your workplace and and, uh, cause trouble like that to you. You shouldn't do that to to professional footballers either, irrespective of what the profession is. It is that simple. The fans should have protested in an organised civil manner from both clubs together prior to the game, which would have had more impact and a telling message. And we'd seen protests done in-game without resorting to this violence. These supporters, so-called supporters, right, were idiotic and they caused injury to players and officials. And that should have happened. And that hit on Thomas Glover, seriously, sickening, right? Should not be in that position to start off with. What What is he expected to do? I mean, with the flair that's thrown at him. So he threw it back into the crowd. I don't think he did it to antagonize the victory supporters behind the goal. And those victory supporters in that active support need to pull their heads in, right? They need to be held responsible for not preventing their so-called mates doing what they did last night. Because there's no excuse for that behavior at all Well, and those scenes. And we struggled with, the game struggled with 10 last year and Paramount Plus, right, which has its own issues, right? But we struggled with regards to promotion of the game and what have you. And yet they brought, and quite rightly, they broadcast those scenes. What else are they going to do? We've put them in a bad position as a game. So there's no excuse for the scenes witnessed last night the active supporters need to be held into account the club the melbourne victory needs to be held into account right and yes we can say that there's a you know unease amongst the supporter groups because of what the apl did that's completely different because there are methods and ways to approach and process that decision which to me does not make any sense right and it looks like there was no consultation with the supporter groups anyway right and there was no need for the APL to make a grand final decision right now, or announce it for, for that matter. Are we looking to put our own goals in our own game? The, the, the other parts of the media will do that for us anyway. So I'm just at a loss as to where you know, as to why this has come about. And I mean, that was just blatant hooliganism last night, and there's no excuse for it, and there's no need for it, and those people should be banned for life. And that's all that needs to be said about those those guys because that's just completely wrong. And I hope they're held criminally uh, responsible as well for assault on um, Tom Glover and the referee, for that matter.
1: And the cameraman as well.
0: And anybody else that was hurt.
1: Yes, yes, of course. And I do echo everything that you say. Of course I do. And yes, the APL made a controversial decision earlier in the week and you can argue whether or not they should have um, consulted with the other groups, consulted with the clubs by all accounts that they weren't consulted with. The supporter groups, as you mentioned, some of the clubs some of the chairmen have come out and said that I wasn't consulted until it was announced.
0: You had the chairman of Melbourne Victory resign during the week as well and saying that, oh, he didn't agree with it, but yet they're a, controlling, they're a member of the board. So what's going on here?
1: You also had the chairman of Western United come out and say that I wasn't consulted whatsoever. My read of it is that following this decision, Danny Townsend, who by all accounts runs the show, he's gone, gone to eight clubs that he needed a guest from to sign off on this. And he didn't worry about the other, the other four in the competition. And there's a very wide-ranging, contrasting set of statements that are slowly being put out by all the stakeholders in the game. And you do get the sense that some are much more on board for this than others. But we can put this chat aside for one moment, and that'll come in our Australian Football Podcast a little bit later on in the month. But nothing excuses what we saw last night. There is no excuse whatsoever, and we saw plenty of peaceful protests already this weekend in the A-League. Well done to the supporters of Newcastle Jets, Wellington Phoenix, Central Coast Mariners for fantastic peaceful protests that didn't cause any disruption to the players or the the match itself, and I hope we do see still peaceful protests today in the A-League. There's two matches on. West United are at home as well as MacArthur there at home, and yes... Those two teams do have modest supporters, supporter bases, but we still need to see that same message come through because the point needs to be made to the rest of the football community first and foremost that supporters of clubs in this country can protest in a peaceful manner without causing the significant issues that we saw last night. So I hope we still see that today. Yes, the message may have been weakened by the action of those that took the field from the Melbourne Victory supporter base and yes... I see people refer to them as they're not fans. Let's be honest, they are fans of the club. They wouldn't be there if they weren't fans. And But we need to highlight that these elements of the supporter base that we don't like, they're still within the ranks of the supporters in this country. And whether or not they're welcome to the ALEG games is a different question. But for mine, to say they're not fans is missing the point. We need to look introspectively and recognise that these elements are still a part of our game and we need to do better in terms of moving beyond this level of hooliganism and disruption and people just looking to start fights. They shouldn't
0: be coming to the game with that intent. They should be there as supporters of the game. It's that simple. And if they're not, and this is where stewards in England are such a great such a great add on to the, to club and ground security. This is what's needed in these cases in particular these derbies. There's no excuse for the behavior that we saw last night. Yes Every family, you know, there there are dickens everywhere, but that is just inexcusable and it can't be justified in any way. And But all they've done is they've utilised this to say, oh, we're dissatisfied with the APL and their decision. Bollocks, right? They're two separate issues, two separate issues. That was just downright, outright hooliganism last night. And with regards to the APL and their grand final decision, which I don't understand, because if we've if the A-League is awash with money, which apparently it is because of the Silver Lake investment, why are we doing this then? But it's a whole discussion for another day. I'm just angry and sad, and, you know, if you listen to me later on, probably you're going to think COVID's made me angry. Well, it probably has, but anyway, never mind.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. We'll talk about this a little bit more in the episodes to come. There's so much more fallout to come out of this, and this is just the tip of the iceberg from this incident, the fallout that we've already seen in the hours that have passed, and we'll cover it off in episodes to come. But first and foremost, this is a World Cup show, and we need to get back to what we saw this morning,
0: Croatia against Morocco. Just quickly, Nathan, congratulations to the PFA as well for the statement that they released with regards to that whole incident. I'll just leave it at that. We've shared it on Instagram in our stories, so that's that's there as well. Congratulations to the PFA because at the end of the day, um, that's the player's workspace, and it was invaded – and we'll just leave it at that. Let's, let's move on back to the World Cup and to happier things.
1: Yeah, yeah. And let's talk about the game this morning. Croatia against Morocco, two goals to one. We didn't need extra time, strangely, for a Croatia match. <laughs> and strangely. I don't, I don't know. I was, I was confused. I, I, full time. Full time I was expecting. I, I was just sitting around in the in the chair for another 10 minutes thinking, all right, where's the football gone?
0: And 10 minutes stoppage time and, you know, hey. Yeah, um, where's the football gone? Like, the Lights went out, and huh? Where's the rest of the game? It's the second game that Croatia have won in the World Cup, yeah. In normal, Lund- yeah, yeah, incredible. Four draws on the way, and you finished third. But credit to them, you got to put yourself into that position, right? All jokes aside. Um, and their midfield has probably been, well, I'd say, yeah, it's definitely you know, one of the top three midfields, and, and they've c- controlled most of the games. And they were in control of this game. You saw the movement off the ball was great. Modric coming back into the line of defence, receiving the ball, ready to you know to uh, to move the ball along. The whole midfield was just working fantastically well, and their movement off the ball was brilliant. The early goals actually helped the game. So at least we weren't we knew that we weren't going to get a, a repeat of the nil all uh, group game <laughs> that we saw earlier in this World Cup. Thankfully. Um, and it kind of opened up the game. So what, what was your take on that?
1: We did say yesterday on the show that we were expecting this game to be played without the handbrake on, that both these teams, yes, it would have been nice to finish third place for, that, for the team that didn't, but it's just an opportunity for these teams to go out there and have some fun. And I think we saw that. We saw both these teams who, for the most part during this tournament, have looked to keep games tight, keep the back door shut, and try and take your opportunities when they arise. We saw them go out in this game on the front foot, try and create chances and create goals, create moments, and we saw that in this game. It was a lot of fun to watch. The much derided third place playoff and still question marks remain over its place at the World Cup, whether or not we should have these games to be the best semi-final loser. Great. But what we did see is a good advert for the third place playoff in that it was these two teams who... At times, they did prefer to sit off and let the other teams do the talking. We saw them bring their own voice to this game. And yes, we saw it a little bit in the semifinal between Morocco and France. And we saw it at moments in the other Moroccan games of this tournament. But today, we saw the Moroccan team in full voice and what they are as a, as a team and what Reg has been able to do, both the good and the bad. We'll come on to the bad in a moment. But from what we saw today, football-wise, they're two great teams. They fully deserve to be where they got to at this tournament. Full credit to Morocco, to Croatia for getting this far. It would have been nice for Morocco to pick up that third place medal, to take it home back to Casablanca and stick it in a museum and put it in a nice exhibit for many generations to look at to come because I don't personally see Morocco being able to repeat this feat for quite some time. Even though it is a young team, they will have a target on their backs at every future tournament moving forward.
0: No, I agree. Look, Croatia actually looked more threatening during this game. Um, and I think that was mainly due to Morocco's defense and changes in personnel. That's what that was down to. And it's, and it was a reflection on the quality that's needed to actually compete with those eight nations that have been World Cup winners before. And it's really the the depth in the squad that you need, um, when you get through to this stage of the tournament, because you could see Morocco were playing hurt in the semi final and, They obviously went out with, um, you know, a a different personnel today and unfortunately Croatia did look more threatening and Croatia had to change in in lineup as well, right? So, yeah, you're right about Morocco. Yes, they will have a target on their back, but the fact that they've uh, got a a young team primarily um, will hold them in good stead and they will be a threat going forward. It'll be interesting to see what happens to Regragi Going forward, if he, if he remains in the Morocco national job, I think that he won't, unfortunately, but um, we'll see. Only time will tell. You mentioned something about um, uh, Morocco and them becoming dishevelled and, and aggrieved.
1: Yeah. Yeah, let's talk about that. Some more ugly scenes in the last 24 hours. And um, what we saw, what I saw from Morocco during the match was, yes, a change in personnel, but also a change in mentality. That they were a little more, they were a lot more casual with the ball, and they were caught out a few times trying to bring the ball out. That's how the second goal for Croatia came. What a strike from uh, Mil- uh, Orsic! But it came about through the inability for Morocco to clear the ball as required, and it was a, a case, an instance of being too casual with it, and they got caught out. What we saw at the end of the game was a team that showed they do care about finish third. They absolutely wanted to win that game, but the way they went about it was nothing short of disgraceful. And there's been plenty of referee discussion from this tournament, which we'll come onto as well. But the Moroccan scenes, the Moroccan players completely lost their heads, I would argue, for the second time, for the second game running. And the crowding of the referee was disgraceful, something you don't want to see. And for mine, there was nothing in this game that was worth protesting. There was worth... All the hubbub. If anything, Croatia should have been the ones that felt hard done by it. They should have had a penalty later on in the game.
0: On uh, Barrio. Yeah. yeah. No, I agree. Totally agree with you. Totally agree with you. Look, one thing that has been obvious in this tournament has been the lack of creating around uh, referees and officials, except for certain notable circumstances. Um, Holland and Netherlands and Argentina, for one. Uh, Uruguay in the other. But... um, Yeah, what you've mentioned here today is, and what we saw uh, unfold during the game and after the game with Morocco um, was, like you said, disgraceful. Players can't afford to lose their cool, right? The eyes of the world are watching you at the World Cup, especially like at this stage, the third and fourth playoff. Maybe not as many as what we'll be watching tomorrow, but yes, we can see and we understand and appreciate that this game means something. However, the frustration that you experience as a player should be, down to your inability to execute what was required. Croatia pressured Morocco and actually pressed Morocco, and that's what led to the mistakes, and they were, and Cro- Croatia were able to capitalise. Morocco wasn't. And like you said, yes, great observation. Morocco was too casual with the ball. You can't allow that to manifest into a protest against the referee and, and circling the referee like you did. The referee, though, and interesting to hear that, Martin Tyler said it was a nod to the uh uh, to the Qataris because they're the referee was Qatari. I don't understand why that's why that should have any significance, but nevertheless, um, what they should have what the referee should have done is actually use his yellow card. Straight away, as soon as people, you know, players are gonna confront you, pull the card out. It's within your rights. It's called descent. Just go and do it, for goodness sakes. What are you sitting there copying it for? I don't understand. Um Rigraghi tried to help the situation after the game, and really the only people that should have been speaking to the referee were the captain and Rigraghi. It's that simple, right? You can't have, and even if that escalates after the game, referee, get your yellow card, start pulling, you know, start booking people, send them off if you have to, whatever the case is, right? If it keeps going. Now, unfortunately, FIFA are going to have to sanction these people because they're going to have to, because they've it against Uruguay as well. So... Um FIFA gonna have to go back retrospectively issue yellow cards, I think, and for dissent because it's just not on. That's just unacceptable. And the thing that's got my goat is that yes, we've had all these campaigns, the armband campaigns, and as valid and as legitimate as they are, and they all are, right? No doubt. The importance of education, the importance of equality, the importance of climate change, all those issues, fantastic. Nobody can dispute that. However, one thing that is missed from this World Cup as compared to previous World Cups, is where is the fair play notion? Where is the respect the referees campaign? Because last time I checked, can't have a game without referees and match officials. So where is that on display?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And football has always had an issue with respect and officials. There's always been that. As long as I can remember, officials have not been respected at any level of the game, whether it is the highest of the World Cup that we've seen this tournament as well as all the way down to grassroots. And this is an ongoing issue that FIFA has to deal with and FIFA has to manage and FIFA has to improve upon because yes, you can argue with officials. You can disagree with them, right? But what we can't have is officials being hounded out of the game. And that's what we're facing at the moment. Yes, the referee from last night, Ibrahim Al Abdul Abdulrahman, yes, he should have got his card out sooner. Yes, perhaps he should have blown a penalty for Croatia Perhaps some free kicks goes Morocco's way. These are all minor issues in comparison to what we did see from the players surrounding the referee, handling the referee as well in some instances. And this is something that FIFA has to deal with because you're going to end up with a smaller pool of referees to choose from. And when you have a smaller pool, of course, the quality of refereeing does go down, right? So we need more people to want to sign up to be referees, as you mentioned, as you said, quite rightly. There is no game without officials, and if we hound people out of the game because they're not quite doing every every single little decision that we want them to do, and then what we do see is that these referees will leave the sport, and they'll be replaced by ones who are not quite up to their standard, and then they'll be hounded hounded out of the game, and it's just a never-ending spiral of abuse and vitriol from everybody involved in the game, and the respect campaign needs to come back. I. Compare what football does and how it treats its officials compared to rugby union, and yes, completely different origins of the sport, and that feeds into why, in terms of it, it's a perhaps a com- uh, it's a long-standing thing in terms of class and um, and just mannerisms and these sort of things. That but that that's all by the by. We're here now in in the modern day, and the football officials are not treated with any modicum of respect that they should be, and we're going to end up with a worse game if it continues in this manner. So I don't think re- retrospective yellow cards is going to cut it.
0: No, me neither. F- fine, and, fine and bans. Fine and
1: bans, yes. Fines and bans. Sanctions to FAs. Make a statement out of it because what we've seen at this tournament thus far, in those instances, is a complete lack of regard for referee welfare. And it was the case with Uruguay that that was completely unjustified. It was the case for Morocco in the semi-final where they lost and they quite rightly lost and They lodged a protest with FIFA following the game about the refereeing, completely unjustified. There was no robbing of Morocco of a a place in the final. It It was an excuse. It was a place to blow off steam. And everybody in the game needs to do better in terms of placing their anger. If something doesn't go your way, don't take it out on the officials. Don't go up and abuse the referees every single time something goes wrong in the game. And I think we'll see another protest from Morocco following this morning's match. It may already have come out and I just haven't seen it, but it it would be completely unjustified once again. And this is taking a little bit of the shine off not only this Moroccan story to get to the semifinal. As we said, well done to get this far, but for mine, they've lost some of the feel-good factor surrounding this team by the scenes that we saw both in the semifinal and this morning at full-time. In particular, Akraf he was uncontrollable at the end. He completely lost his head and the manner in which he Conducted himself in front of the officials was embarrassing.
0: Well said. Look, um, they shouldn't lodge a protest. They should accept it as it was, right? Um, the referees can be better in every game, but there are, they are human, right? So it's up to players and officials from teams to ensure that the um, that they have respect for, for the referees and the assistant referees. It is that simple, right? It comes from the top. So if there is a way to talk to referees in game, right? But that has got to stop. It's you can't have that. It's that simple. And happening on the world's biggest stage, come on! Like you're right. I don't want to take don't want to take away too much gloss from Morocco's um, World Cup because they are the story of the World Cup. But um, they've done themselves no favors with regards to how they've ended it here, especially uh, with those scenes. So uh, we get it that you know they're emotionally charged. They're disappointed primarily in their inability to uh, execute whatever game plan that Uriagragi had and their frustrations, but it can't manifest itself in that way and that they uh, need to have a look at themselves. And the whole game needs to have a look at it, right? Um, we love the game. Can't have it without referees. doesn't matter what your opinion is of them, right? you got to have respect for these people um, because they deserve it, right? They're there, giving up their time, getting paid for it, sure, but... They're giving of their time, and you can't have a game without referees. It's that simple. So um, we need to change the culture and approach towards referees. There's no doubt about that. People listening to this podcast are going to think I'm angry because of COVID. Probably. I'm not sure. I'm tired. I'm trying to battle a cough. I don't know what's going on. But nevertheless, here we are. Here we are. So, Nathan, what did you notice off-field? What took your attention?
1: Uh, well, there's only one thing that took my attention away from the World Cup and on the pitch stuff this week, and far out. We already covered it off, so I'm not going to open that can of worms again, but um, what caught your eye? And I know that you, you've got a few things lined up here. I do.
0: I feel... I feel... Pissed off? Yes, I feel pissed off <laughs> and angry. But nevertheless, um, better for talking to you, which is good, and better for, you know, everyone listening to it, to the podcast. Um I feel pissed off, yes. But that's my reference to Gianni Infantino, El Presidente of FIFA. He spoke again. Oh, I
1: love it when Gianni Infantino speaks. It makes for great content. Oh, yeah,
0: absolutely. Have you heard there's going to be a 32-team Club World Cup in 2025?
1: Hmm. Yes, I have. I have. Gianni Infantino, another bright idea.
0: We we don't know in what... Like, we know it's going to be eight groups of four. We don't know who qualifies and how they qualify and what the thing, what the um, spe- specifics are. But yes, so there will be an.
1: Hey, at least they've got eight groups of four, right?
0: Yes, well, funny you should mention that. I'll get to that in a second, actually. Uh, there's going to be a Club Women's World Cup and there's going to be a Women's Futsal uh, World Cup as well. So that's uh, other things that uh, were of note. But another takeaway from El Presidente speaking was that they're going to revisit the 16 groups of, th- of three that are slated for the 2026 edition of the World Cup and perhaps change it with 12 groups of four. And thank goodness for that consideration.
1: i tell you what, how long has it taken for them to realise? it? Everybody knew, as soon as they initially said 16 groups of three, everybody disagreed with the situation, with that prospective format for the next World Cup. Because quite rightly... One game to decide who goes through, and the other team just sits on the sideline and watches, that's not, that's not what we're after. That's not what we've seen in this tournament. It's not what we've seen in tournaments gone by. And it leads the potential for teams shaking hands and taking a, a draw that suits both parties. 100%. What we see in groups of three is a massive detraction from the group stage of the World Cup. Typically, the group stage is the best. Part of the tournament. Yes, as we get in, into the back end, we see great football, we see great moments, and we crown a champion. But by and large, the group stage is the most enjoyable part of the tournament. That goes for the World Cup, that goes for the Champions League as well, that goes for so many different competitions. The group stage is the best part for me. And if we're going to go down this route of 16 groups of three, that massively detracts from the appeal of the group stage.
0: 100%. 100%.
1: Couldn't agree with you more. So, what's this new potential format, Les? Well, what are we going to here? groups of 4
0: 12 groups of 4 it's <sighs> the, the details will be discussed by the fifa committee or fifa council but yes 12 groups of 4 by the look of things so and look that's why we that's what you want you want the drama you want the last group match to matter you had that that's what made this world cup so dramatic the last group game of each uh, group you know so yeah so thankfully um you know they've um Learned the lessons of this World Cup with regard to that, and um, let's hope they get it right and just do go with the, the 12 groups of four. Look, it'll mean more matches, right, but FIFA and the and FIFA Pro will need to uh, address that issue with regards to player welfare and, and and the like. But um as far as the structure of the tournament is concerned, it needs to be 12 groups of four if they're expanding it to 48, which they are.
1: But that also means you're going to get all the firsts, obviously, all the seconds, and probably eight out of 12... 12- thirds would qualify for the knockouts. Yeah, because you'll have a round of 32. You'll have a round of 32. It's no good either. It's so much worse. Yes, it's better than 16 groups of three, but it's not anywhere close to eight groups of four. And yes, we've had instances of some drama where you're looking at the third place tables to see if you go through, but nothing beats just the simplicity of the eight groups of four. You have both matches kicking off at the same time, and that's all that matters in that moment. That's what decides who goes through. And
0: Nathan, you're becoming too cynical. You're becoming too cynical oh. now about this. Come on. Come oh. on. You don't oh. you don't see that they need to let China and India and, and all these other countries be a all part right. of the World Cup? Right. To that point. If you want to get more teams at the World Cup. <laughs> oh, sorry, right. I just had to rile you up. I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> oh if you want to get more teams at this World Cup. And let's be honest, let's be perfectly clear, it is not for the development of football in China, India, wherever else. Oh, come it on, stop now. Poor. Stop.
0: <laughs> it is the
1: broadcast revenue. It is the broadcast revenue. Okay. FIFA are looking at the potential to get China in the World Cup, point six, 1.6, 1.7 billion more eyes on the tournament, and their eyes are lighting up with the potential extra money that they can squeeze out of broadcast rights and sponsorships. But if you want to go down that route and you want to get more national teams at the World Cup, Go straight to 64. Yes, it'll be chaotic. Yes, there's a lot of football, but bugger it if we're expanding the World Cup. <laughs> Two foot, dive in, straight there. Uh, 16 groups of four. Bring it on.
0: Oh, my Lord. Hey, yeah, look, you, you, you might be onto something there. What can I say? What can I say? Because we're going there anyway. 48 is just a stepping stone to 64. Possibly. Possibly. Who knows? Who knows? That's really a uh, uh, long crystal ball gazing, that one. But yes, who knows? I wasn't going to mention this, but do you think it has anything to do with this? So FIFA's revenue budget was $6 billion for the last four-year cycle up until this current World Cup. They are going to exceed their revenue budget by one over, in excess of $1 billion. I don't want to bore people with the deal. I wasn't going to mention this, but it's pertinent to what you're saying. Guess what the budgeted revenue figure will be, including the next World Cup, the next edition of the World Cup, 2026.
1: Hey, it'll, be more than the tw- it'll be more than the $12 million the Alex have got from the New South
0: Wales government. <laughs> <laughs> well, we shouldn't laugh, but honestly. So the budgeted figure that's been approved by the FIFA Council is $11 billion US. Thank you
1: very much. Hey, and where's that
0: money going? Where do you th- well, over $10 billion is to be invested back into football according to the uh, audited uh, budget that's been prepared. So there you go.
1: I look forward to the $0.37 check in the mail.
0: Don't be so cynical, Nathan. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) Don't be so cynical. Now, so that's what caught our eye off the field. Should we move on to a preview of the World Cup final now? To better and happier things.
1: Yes. Yes. Let's move over to the final. And talk
0: football, for goodness sakes.
1: Yes. 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 We love... We want to talk about football. As much as it is fun to be cynical and lambast referees or lambast players lambasting referees and lambasting FIFA for lambasting players for lambasting referees. There's just this continual cycle of, uh, of uh, discussion points away from football, but we need to get back to the football and this match tomorrow morning, 2 a.m. Sydney time is the culmination of the entire 12-year build-up to this point point. and we have the two best teams, we have the two best players, Messi versus Mbappe, we have the two best managers, Uh, Scaloni against Deschamps, and this final, hopefully it lives up to the billing.
0: I have a controversial question for you.
1: Oh, here we go. I love controversial questions. We haven't had enough on this show.
0: Is Mbappe the second best player at this tournament or one of the two top players in this tournament? I contend not.
1: For me, it's six or one half a dozen, the other with Griezmann. Okay, thank you.
0: So it should be Griezmann against Messi, not Mbappe against oh. Messi, and, and 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 you'll find something out about that tomorrow, actually. <laughs> so you have to listen to the recap World Cup recap edition of the Daily Doha tomorrow to find out. Stay tuned to that one. Yes, my contention about that. God, I hope Argentina win. <laughs> <laughs> not not just
1: for your own prediction, That's of right. course. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Uh, uh, but yes, no, I do say it is Messi against Mbappe. Yes, Griezmann's had a brilliant tournament. Yes, he might end up winning golden ball if France do lift the trophy tomorrow morning. But these are the two goal scorers. They're the two vying for the golden boot. They get the headlines. It is potentially the passing of the torch. Messi, the greatest player in the world, perhaps giving it off to Kylian Mbappe to take the helm of the greatest player in the current day. And I saw the front page of, I believe it was Lequipe, This morning, and it is two chances at immortality. And that is what's on the line here. Messi, if he wins the tournament, as you said previously on the back peg, this is the opportunity for him to get out of Maradona's shadow. And yes, Messi's had a fantastic career, regardless of what happens tomorrow. Yes, he's been brilliant for Barcelona, for Argentina, for Argentinian football as a whole. There is the opportunity here for him him to become clear as the greatest of all time. But if it is Kylian Mbappé who is lifting the trophy once again for the second time in his relatively short career, it's his chance at immortality already as well.
0: Yeah, that's a good point, Nathan. Very good point. Because that's one thing that Mbappe has over Messi, that he has won a World Cup and um, Messi hasn't. Now, with regards to Messi and his GOAT status in this conversation about GOATs, look, um, in my mind, he will surpass Maradona. Statistically, he already has. Um, with regards to achievements and, and career achievements. But there is one piece of the crown jewel missing, and that is the World Cup. And in Argentina's eyes, no doubt that Messi has g- gained a lot of favour with the Copa America win and bringing home a major. But um, in order to, um, to elevate his status even further and perhaps beyond the legend of Maradona um, and achieve all-time GOAT status, is uh, a World Cup victory. But having said that, Maradona was a completely different beast to Messi, and Messi has not done the things that Maradona has done on a football field. There is one statistic, which I saw yesterday, funnily enough. Did it catch your eye? Yes, it did catch my eye. Maradona fouled 152 times during World Cup play. The next highest fouled player in the World Cup is who?
1: Lionel Messi.
0: Lionel Messi. but. He's only been fouled 65 times during five World Cups thus far. And Maradona actually only played three and a quarter World Cups. So you tell me who was marked more and, and targeted more and kicked a lot more.
1: Yeah. I think that's also an indication of the the areas that they played in. I think if you switch them, then that foul count will be very similar. Like If you just put Messi in the 80s and Maradona in today, then yeah, it'll be very similar, I feel.
0: On that, I don't think Messi would have survived. In the way that uh, Maradona did. Actually, that's a fair point. That is a fair right, point. Right, because Maradona was a different beast as compared to Messi. It's that simple. And they'll be up there comparable to one another. They'll be, you know.
1: For mine, goat status is between these two. It is these two and these two that step above the rest for mine. That might be a controversial take.
0: I can't argue with you.
1: The mind goes immediately to a, a certain Brazilian. And for mine, Messi, and Maradona, they. Their, their careers both do eclipse Pele for mine.
0: And look, he was pretty special. I mean... Come on. No, come on. All jokes aside, he was Like, he was... Three... You know, yes. 58, 62, and 70. And mind you, he was yes, kicked Yes, but out it's a couple of
1: good games every four years.
0: Yeah, okay. And look, he could have gone to Europe and tested himself, and he didn't. I understand that.
1: You came on here yesterday, Laz, and you said the reason why you don't hold Messi as uh, one of the greatest of all time or the greatest of all time is that he didn't test himself in the Premier League or leagues that might not suit his style.
0: No, I agree. I understand that and I stand by that. But with Pelé, um, with Pelé was more of a striker. Like, And I would actually compare Pelé to, say, R9, that Ronaldo, the original Ronaldo, as we say. The original Ronaldo was a phenomenon. Didn't get three World Cups like Pelé did. And that's the thing about er- eras, right? But I don't know if Messi would have had the... Ability to stand the challenges and perhaps the flaws that Maradona did, because yeah, um, you know to survive in the era that Maradona did, it took a certain kind of personality, shall we say, and a certain a certain type of skill. And yeah, it's a fascinating conversation. And we'll probably you know rest in peace, Diego. Hopefully, we haven't tarnished your memory there. But geez, um, <laughs> you know, God bless you. But, yes, uh, he was a phenomenal talent, a phenomenal talent. And the, the things, the trickery that he got involved with the ball and some controversial situations, uh, I don't know if Messi would have survived. But, nevertheless, you can't dispute Messi's statistics, you know, and what he's done. Uh, I would have liked to have seen him play in the EPL because I think he would have done really well.
1: So that's a, that's a good sidetrack.
0: Yeah. <laughs> let's get on to tomorrow, though, and how we think these, go- these uh, teams are going to line up. Um, and we said in previous editions – of the daily Doha that Scaloni has um, done some coaching masterclasses here, and I was looking back at the formations and, and the lineups that he did in preparation for today's pod, and I thought interesting to note: four two three one is how they lined up against Saudi Arabia. He hasn't played that again. Four four two against Mexico. Four three three against Poland and Australia. Five three two against Netherlands, which is where obviously the Netherlands came back late in the game. And he showed the Netherlands a lot of respect, perhaps too much respect. And Croatia, diamond four four two, 4 essentially. And it looks like he'll probably go the same way again with a diamond. It's a 4-3-1-2, but let's call it a diamond 4-4-2. Uh, with Martinez in goal, Molina, right back Romero, Otamendi, Acu- uh, Acuna, uh, Fernandez, Paredes, McAllister, who's had a, a sensational World Cup. He's been brilliant. Uh, DePaul. Messi and Alvarez.
1: Yeah, I do think I would be surprised if there were significant changes. If um, Scaloni does go with some wholesale changes, I, I think he will not. Interesting whether he does go with a back five. And that sort of feeds into the wider point. Yes, you just rattled off the whole different set of formations that Argentina have gone out with in these matches. And France, which we'll come on to, haven't really changed their shape that much. No.
0: And that's the reason why I highlight that.
1: But shapes only are they're only one piece of the puzzle in terms of how a team sets up. And for mine, Scaloni has gone out and changed his shape. Deschamps has gone out and changed his approach. Two different two different senses of tactics. And that's why I say they're the two best managers at this tournament. And what we've seen from France versus what we've seen from Argentina are very different styles of management, but they both have worked a treat and Deschamps, he probably will line up in a 4-2-3-1 as he has done pretty much in every game. But I think there's a front two on the table for him. If he can take that opportunity, I think that can disrupt and that will throw a massive spanner in the works of Scaloni's setup. And that will give him something to think about for the first phase of the game where France might be able to spring a surprise.
0: That's a good point. That's a good point. And you're right. I think you've been seeing my notes. (laughs) 4-2-3-1 for France. So, um, yeah, look. We said that both of them, ha- both Deschamps and Scaloni, have managed on a game by game basis. The way that Scaloni's done it is in change of shape, right? Whilst or change in formation rather. But um, whilst France and Deschamps have pretty much played four two three one all the way through, except for the Tunisia game, which we wrote off, which is four one four one, which you won't be doing that again with the nine personal changes. So we disregard that.
1: And even then, to that point, I think it changed the shape just because to fit those extra nine players in. It wasn't a choice to play 4-1-4-1. 4-1. It was just, all right, how can I cram all these extra players in that I don't normally play? Yeah,
0: yeah. So, and it's the way that they've approached the game rather than anything else that has been the change from game to game with regard to France, right? Now, you're right. If there is probably an opportunity to play two strikers for France, but I don't know if... Both of these coaches will do that, or both these managers will do that, because then that'll show a lack of confidence, a lack of perceived confidence in the squads or in the formations that they've played with coming out of the semi finals. And yeah, I, I don't know. I think if Scaloni does go back to a 5 3 2, for instance, right, you can put one guy in Mbappe and mark him. But I think that he'll be too much in his own head, if that makes sense. I don't see the the reason to do that, and I don't see. Look, both these teams are adaptable and, and will change to any situation and adapt to any situation. I just think that, um, and we'll go through the French lineup in a, a proposed lineup in a second. But I think that I think that um, they both these managers need to emanate an era confidence in the teams that they've got at their disposal and that they've tried and tested throughout this process. What is encouraging for Argentina is the fact that they have. We said that they've been building throughout the tournament, and against Croatia in the semi-final, they were—you know—that was their best performance I think to date. So that serves them well, um, and their midfield works bloody hard, absolutely bloody hard. Like McAllister, Fernandez, De Paul has been—you know—they've uh, they, been absolutely brilliant. Um, so yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting, interesting to see how this one plays out with regards to that.
1: Yeah, I think at the end of the day, you need to dance with the girl who brought you. Stick to what got you to this phase of the tournament, and I think we'll see uh, a very familiar-looking lineup. And perhaps, maybe 25, 30 minutes in, Scaloni especially might look to switch things up if it's not going too well. I think it, it doesn't take France scoring for him to change the system, which is good. He's 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 very much a proactive manager in that sense. That if if he sees something. He's going to act on it, unlike some other managers that we have talked about in the past that they will wait for something bad to happen before they change their system.
0: Who are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I know who you're talking about. I know who you're talking about.
1: You know exactly who I'm talking about. Somebody who's actually, uh, apparently, is going, still going to be in charge yes. of, uh, of their team for the foreseeable, which uh, is interesting.
0: Yes, yes. Mr. Southgate. There you go.
1: Yes, Mr. Southgate. We should let the, let the listeners in on, on, on who we're Absolutely. I did
0: see that, actually, but I didn't want to mention it. But anyway, I thought we'd be better talking, talking off about El Presidente.
1: Yes, we would have been here for another half an hour if we started talking about Southgate in England. But Scaloni, as I've said in other episodes, really impressed by what he's been able to achieve with his team. The variation, the variability, the the horses for courses. Scenario that he has that he's able to change his team when he sees fit, when he sees something that's not quite right, when there's something that he's able to um, preeminate. Is that the word that he's able to preeminate? And Deschamps, I don't think he has that same sort of flexibility in the players that he has available.
0: I don't know if it's a flexibility thing. I think it's just a lack of willingness to change, to be honest. <laughs> so, and look, but even so, Even yeah. so, France are the
1: last tournament played a four three three, not this four two three one that we're seeing now.
0: Do you think that- I think that they've played that because Kante's gone, Pogba's gone, right? So, he's, you know, and he's um, uh, had to rely on Chumini, who's been brilliant, right? Uh, and Rabiot, um, and Griezmann, right? So- Look, Griezmann playing effectively a number 10 role or number 8 role, whichever way you look at it, I think that he's been absolutely brilliant and is you know and quite rightly with Messi golden ball candidate. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, so with France, you've got Lloris and Goal obviously Kunde, who's replaced Pavard and um Pavard hasn't been seen since.
1: Has anybody seen Pavard? I might uh, might send out a search <laughs> party. Where's go. where's Benjamin Pavard? <laughs>
0: Back to Bayern Munich, possibly. Uh, (laughs) Varane, Upamecano. Yeah, look, Kanate played really well against Morocco, so that could be 50-50 there, I guess.
1: It's it's Kanate all day for me.
0: Yeah, for me too, but I think he might play with Upamecano. Who knows? Depending if he's well. Uh, Teo Hernandez, Chumini, uh, Rabio, more than likely, depending on if he's gotten over his illness. And I think think you messaged me the... uh, Offline saying, hey, look, uh, France have got a scare going through the um, the team with regards to illness.
1: Yes, apparently there's five or six players that have uh, come down, not with COVID, I should state, not COVID, but just a a flu or a cold or some sort of viral bug going around. And blaming the air conditioning. Blaming the air conditioning, yes. Um, Now, I have some doubts on the validity of the story. (laughs) Is it smoke and mirrors? Because as we saw pre-tournament, Apparently, everyone in the France camp hated each other, (laughs) Uh, and uh, Mbappe was uh, being subject to curses and witch doctors and all sorts of malarkey, but eh, we haven't seen any of that raise its head during the tournament. Once we've got underway, this France team looks as united as ever, and maybe they've gone back to the well of uh, creating some distraction uh, in the press. So uh, we'll see who takes the field but uh, I would I would be surprised if there were significant outings due to this uh, so-called viral bug that's going around.
0: Yes, uh, Chumini, Rabiot, if he's fit, and I think they need, I think France need Rabiot. Actually, he's been immense for them in this World Cup. Uh, and Griezmann in the middle.
1: To that point, I think France need Rabiot in this game more than they needed him against Morocco. Fofana was good against Morocco because they sat off. They allowed Morocco to have the ball. And final offered a little bit more coverage. Rabio, he needs to be able to create something against Argentina because France will have more of the ball in this game.
0: I think that's what is going to how it's going to play out, and we'll get to that in a second, actually. And uh, Debele, Mbappe, and Giroud. Yes, um, I think you're right there, Nathan. I think that's what Argentina are going to try and do, is to actually give the French the ball, which will be an interesting dynamic because I think if uh, Argentina have all of the ball, it'll play to France's hands with regards to the counter. I don't know what your thoughts are.
1: Yeah, that's the way I see it going as well. Both these teams have shown that they're adept at sitting off and hitting into space because the likes of Mbappe and Dembele and Coman off the bench, they're so fast. And if you have space to run into, they are deadly. We saw that sprint from Mbappe against Morocco where he uh, just skipped past the diving tackle of, uh, I believe it was Amrabat who was uh, coming across. Tackle. And...
0: (sighs) What a great
1: tackle. Yes. Tackle. Great tackle. Tackle. Um, But that just highlights the pace that he has. And it's not a surprise. We knew he was that quick. But that's something for Argentina to look out for. And I think that's a major threat. Yes, France, when they've come up against teams that sit in, they've shown they're able to beat them as well. But if you give France the opportunity to run in behind, then you are causing yourself massive problems. And for that reason, I do think Argentina will sit back. And that perhaps does bring the back five into play a little bit if they are going to sit off. But, yeah, I think Argentina will surrender possession. They're happy, they'll be happy to sit off. And we've seen Julian Alvarez go on mazy runs and riding challenges on the break at this tournament already. Perhaps we'll see it again.
0: No, that's fair. That's fair. I, look, no, that's fair. I think, that, um, I think that what Sir France will in the semifinal was obviously taking Giroud off and um, putting uh, Thuram on. Mbappe went into the middle. He wasn't happy about it, but he went into the middle. But um, the Ram also poses a threat if you know things don't go into France. You know, play out the way that France would like to. So, one thing that's going to sort this, uh, these two teams out, is the midfield, and it's going to be a question of Argentina's hard work off the ball in the midfield versus the quality that France has in midfield. Not to say that Argentina doesn't have quality in in its midfield, but um, they have worked very hard um, throughout this tournament, and they're going to need to sustain those levels and exceed those levels of work uh, in order to uh, counters uh, to counter France's quality in midfield.
1: Absolutely, and we'll come on to our predictions now. We'll get to the the spicy point of the preview.
0: Chips on the table time.
1: Chip chips on the table time. Yes. Who do we see lifting the the sparkling Jules Ramey Trophy at potentially just past 4am Sydney time, perhaps a bit later on in the night if the game goes on that little bit further. But Laz, you tipped Argentina from the off. Are you sticking with it?
0: Yes, in a word. Yes. (laughs) I'm hoping now. Look, I think France are favourites. I think France are favourites, but I am hoping more so than anything that uh, Argentina can get it done. And... um, I think that they will win, uh, be it in the 90 minutes or on penalties. And I think it'll be 2-1 in, if it isn't in in the 90 minutes. And I think Messi and Alvarez uh, get a goal each. And I think Mbappe scores for France. But, um, yeah, it'll, it'll be a top game. The quality that's on show, these these two teams are the best two teams from the tournament. And we got the final that, um, that we deserve and, and that um, – that we're waiting for. So the world champion is going all the way to defend its title and they're taking on a team that is motivated to give a, a living legend of football a international send-off that only players can dream of. So it's all on the line here and I think that Argentina will come through. How about yourself, Nathan?
1: Yeah, I think France will be favourites for the 90 minutes. I think if they're able to get Mbappe in a little bit of space then he can cause so many dramas. And Giroud, completely completely the opposite of Russia 2018. Giroud has been a, a goal-scoring phenom at this tournament, and that's going to be tricky. is going to have to have a fantastic game up against Olivier Giroud, and I think France will create more of the chances. It's just whether or not they're good enough to take them and be able to break down this Argentinian uh, backline that have shown some vulnerability in games gone by, but when the going gets tough, they do indeed come out on top. And I think at 90 minutes plus stoppage time, the referee blows his whistle and the scores are locked. I think it swings to Argentina. I think if we get into extra time and into penalties, I think Argentina do have the edge. And they've shown it at this tournament thus far. France have had it relatively easy in terms of the length of the games that they've played. They've beaten everybody in 90 minutes, but they've had a harder run to get to the final. And with all due respect to the Socceroos, to the Dutch, to the Croatians. I think France's run of the final has been tougher. They've had to overcome different challenges, tougher challenges on the whole. So that's why I say France in 90 minutes, but if it goes to extra time, I back Argentina in. I want to see Messi lift the trophy. It'll be a great way to sign off this World Cup, to sign off Messi's career on the international stage. And I think everyone wants to see that now, that Messi goes out with his head held high, lifted it aloft, by his teammates and holding the Jules remain. What a fantastic scene that will be! But if it is France, fair play to them. I won't have any complaints, and it'll be great scenes to see Mbappe with his second World Cup in his relatively short career. So, as I say, France in ninety minutes. But if it goes to extra time, I back Argentina. I'll go one all at full time and all the way through. Emmy Martinez is the hero once again.
0: Vamos Argentina! Come on, get my selection right. <laughs>
1: Uh, So that is our preview for the Big Dance tomorrow morning, 2 a.m. Sydney time. And, wow, very much looking forward to it. We'll be back on the Back Peg tomorrow, our final episode of the Daily Doha series to recap the World Cup final and the tournament as a whole. We'll do a little bit of a Best 11, our favourite moments, these sorts of things, so stay tuned for that. Um, Laz, thank you very much for joining me. Uh, COVID and all, you've uh, fought off the demons to come and speak. Uh, Listener, it's the second time we're recording this podcast. I can't believe we've spoken for another (laughs) hour. We've spoken for longer on this second recording than we did the first one. I can't believe that. Nathan,
0: thank you very much, honestly. Thank you for joining me, Les. No, thank you very much for all your work and and your editing and and all that. I just want to thank you because uh, you've been amazing. Um, And to do this um, Daily Doha series and the Destination Doha series uh, has been absolutely great and thank you for everything and thanks to all the listeners for listening and the downloads and the interaction with us uh we're truly grateful and humbled and great, most appreciative
1: yeah likewise as well guys thank you very much for your for your input for uh your running of the social uh the the, the instagram anyway and uh it's been brilliant uh, the interactions that you've been able to generate on on the platform so uh, you've been a credit to the show. And it's a team effort that it has been here on the Backpeg, the Destination Doha through to the Daily Doha, and uh, plenty more still to come. The, sh- the, the podcast is not finishing tomorrow. Yes, the Daily Doha might come to a close, but the Backpeg will move on to a what we believe to be a weekly show, and uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, but for now, I've been Nathan Gould.
0: And I'm Lazarus Gross. Enjoy the final tomorrow morning, and we'll talk soon. Take care. Thank you